Right on. I wanted to start just reading to you from uh, Psalm 125. It says this. It's one of the Psalms of Ascent that would be read and recounted on a journey up to Jerusalem. So we're coming to the, the story of the triumphal entry this morning. And so, of course, these are, these are psalms, like Psalm 125 would be a psalm that's recited on the way up to Jerusalem at a time like Passover because you're going to worship the Lord. And, and, and Jerusalem is like this high point in the city of, in, in, sorry, in the country of Israel, and it's always a journey up. So they would have these psalms of ascent, and it says this in Psalm 125, verse uh, 1 and two, 2, that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. I just love this description of Jerusalem in uh, the Old Testament here because it tells us the mountains, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And Jerusalem as a city is kind of interesting geographically that it's built on top of a mountain, on Mount Zion itself. And then Mount Zion is surrounded by mountains, by a, by a ring of mountains. There's actually only one valley out of that area. It's the Kidron Valley. And, and what you have is just mountain peak after mountain peak surrounding the city of Jerusalem. So if you're going to approach the city, we're talking triumphal entry this morning, if you're going to approach the city, you're going to go over a mountain into the city of Jerusalem from no matter which direction you're headed. So it's like you're going up to Jerusalem. Imagine this. You can't see the city. It's not like if you ever done one of those prairie drives. Uh, Simpkins just did this, you know, where you're like, I don't know, 100 kilometers from Saskatoon or Edmonton or Regina. You could just see it coming and you're counting down. You're thinking, how long is it going to take before we finally arrive at this prairie city? Okay, it's not like that in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there's no sight of the city whatsoever, and you come up over the mountain, and then boom, there it is. You're like right on top of it. And so you can't see it at all. And, and, and there's Jerusalem set as you come over a mountain, right around this, this ring of mountains with it in the center. And of course, in the time of Jesus, um, when you came to the mountain's uh, surrounding Jerusalem, and then come up over them, the amazing sight that you would see when you come over immediately was the temple. So I actually got a, a picture of this. I wanted to chuck up on the screen for you this morning just to get our, a little bit of a sense. I was, I was thinking about this uh, a fair bit and thought it might be fun to look at some... Sorry, look at the watermarks on there. These were my favorite pictures that I could find, and they had watermarks on them. But um, there's, the, there's the city. It gives... This is just a to get a sense of the enormity of the temple and what was involved here as we're talking Passover and the triumphal entry. We want to get the context of the scripture. And so this is from the west. You're looking east. That mountain that you see in the picture is the Mount of Olives in the background. So imagine this. Just over the other side of that mountain is the little town of Bethpage and Bethany. Jesus came over that mountain and he would see the, the city, see the, the uh, Temple Mount looking just like that. Bethany, of course, on the other side was the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, where Jesus spent a lot of time when he was hanging out in that area. And uh, over Mount Olives there, to the east, for 25 kilometers downhill, the whole way, 4,000 feet down, 
is Jericho, where Jesus is coming from, directly east. So to give you some perspective on that, how, how many of you, I mean, you've driven the Coquihalla, right? You've been up to the summit of the Coquihalla. Well, you know what it's like to drive up to the summit of the Coke, and the Coke sits at about 40, a little over 4,200 feet above sea level. From Jericho to Jerusalem is that same distance, okay? 4,000 feet. It's just up, 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 up for 25 kilometers, and that's the journey that they're making. It's like going from, you know, hope to the Coquihalla summit, so to speak. So I want to flip this picture around for you for a second, let you look the other way. So now you're on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking the other direction. You're looking west from the eastern side. Um, And so you can imagine you come over the Mount of Olives. There's some little travelers right there. See them? I didn't have flannel graph this morning, so I thought we'd go with this. Um, And you just, boom, there is the temple in front of you, right in your face. And and there it is, every visitor coming to the city, this is what they were looking forward to beholding, what they were looking forward to seeing. The temple actually is right there, just not that big in terms of this big, massive structure. They actually say this, that in the time of Solomon, it was so fantastic, that first temple, that there was so much wealth and so much gold, they would take the gold and they would just make grapevines and leaves, and it would all hang off the front of the temple. They say when the sun come up in the morning and it would hit the gold, it would be like a light went off in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, some legend stuff there and all that, but very fascinating. And so that's from the east, looking, looking west. That's the center of Israel's national worship. Passover was a high holiday. The city was flooded with, with worshipers coming and it's hard for us to imagine this. You know, we picture Jesus on a, you know, a little donkey and 12 guys following him. And it's like, is that the scene? That is not the scene. That's what I want us to catch this morning. Okay? The population of the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day may have topped at about 100,000 people. But at Passover, something like 2 million people would descend on the city of Jerusalem. It's hard for us to imagine. You know, like I said, Jesus just riding into town with his 12. But this is not how it went down. These things, the scripture tell us clearly, it did not happen in a corner. This was the biggest worship event of the year. I mean, Chris Tomlin was there. Everybody was there, okay? The big thing. And and the the ring of mountains surrounding Uh, Jerusalem, the inner part that was facing the city, everyone would camp out there. There would be families everywhere, communities that traveled together camping, worshipers who would come to participate in Passover celebrations. And the gospel accounts tell us the name of Jesus was on the lips of everybody. They're like, what is going to happen? Do you think that he would be so bold as to appear at this time? His name was on their lips. They were discussing, will he show his face? Especially the pilgrims that had come from the north, the ones that had come from Galilee, where Jesus was especially well-known and especially popular. They were very familiar with his teachings, with the amazing miracles. And, And even there in the backwater of Galilee, thousands would gather to hear him speak. So those camping on the slopes were discussing, they were debating these things. It's particularly exciting because it was Passover and there was this elevated possibility of anticipation of what could unfold, you know? Is Jesus the king? 
Is he the king of Israel? Will he take his throne? Is he going to unite the nation? Is he going to end the Roman occupation? The gate that you actually see here, I'll just point this out. This is, this is the road that Jesus would have traveled right through to that gate. It's called the Eastern Gate. Ezekiel prophesies about this gate. He says in the later parts of Ezekiel, he speaks of a vision that he had of the glory of God coming through that gate into the temple. Elsewhere, Ezekiel prophesied that that gate would eventually be closed and no one would go through it again until the king came. And so this was the expected entrance of the Messiah. It's also called the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate. Zechariah prophesied this, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I give you one more view of the city, just uh, to give a bit more perspective again. It's a little more aerial, and I like this one because it gives you a good perspective of the size of the temple as the centerpiece of Israel's worship in that day and at that time. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's like, there's the city, and look at this structure. These are people who love to worship. And what's interesting is we're going to read here on this day that as Jesus was approaching the city of Jerusalem, he requested a, a mount, not, not a horse, uh, but a donkey to ride on. And that was unusual for Jesus. It, that was not his practice. Jesus normally could be found on foot walking with his disciples. I was remembering when I was a a teenager, I got some tickets to a Vancouver Canucks game, the old Pacific Coliseum, and the LA Kings were coming to town. And I was pretty pumped because the great one, Gretzky, was going to be there. And um, I remember watching some of the footage and hanging out at the rink, and uh, we had snuck out to watch things go down. And Gretzky arrived separate from the team, you know. The team arrived on the bus, and Gretzky arrived in a limo. And it was like traveling on his own. It's like not the thing, you know to do as a teammate. Well, I was thinking about this. This is not Jesus, just to be clear. You know, Jesus doesn't have the habit of flying first class and then leaving the disciples back riding coach. They walked together. They traveled together. He was with them shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, you know, living life side by side from Galilee to Jericho to Jericho up to Jerusalem. And as they approached Jerusalem, this time Jesus requested something different. He sent them ahead and he said, go and procure for me a, a mount. And the disciples at this point in time, I mean, uh, the, these are Jewish men. They're, they're not uninformed, ignorant fools about what all this entailed. Jesus, uh, you know, normally would have walked with them, but now he's asking to ride and they recognize this. This is not anybody rides into Jerusalem with all these sorts of expectations surrounding them on a mount. This is like a military picture almost. Many have ridden into Jerusalem over the generations, coming to reign. And so all of these factors, all of these things going on, Passover, the crowds, the geography, the expectations, the, the conversations that were going around would have very quickly and easily stirred up this whole situation that we're about to read. The problem is, 
if you're familiar with the triumphal entry, was that they didn't notice the nature of the animal that Jesus was riding. It was a donkey, not a horse. A donkey, that's like, a donkey's the wrong animal for conquering, for announcing your conquering of a city. The message of the day was missed, as we're going to see, because they did not perceive the message of that which Jesus was riding. Again, Zechariah said this, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Uh, humility, humbleness is a, a proper view of oneself. Other, other texts say that Jesus came in meekness, his strength under control. Jesus was coming in righteousness to, to make peace for the purpose of salvation. He wasn't coming to conquer armies, armies, but to conquer the hearts of men and women. And so look at what it says in chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is Luke announcing him leaving Jericho on the way. And I love this verse. We mentioned it last week because there is Jesus going to Jerusalem where he's going to die. He's fully aware of that. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to face the cross, suffering and death and rescue and redemption. And then after it all, yes, resurrection and victory. But here he is. He's not tailing behind all the crowds that are making their way up to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading the procession as they head up into the mountains. Verse 29. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sorry, and so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. Now, I don't know about you. I, I just, I've never spent time around uh, horses or donkeys. Although maybe I should rephrase that. I spent lots of time around donkeys, just the two-legged kind. <laughs> But you know what they say, birds of a feather flock together. So it says something about me. But the four-legged kind, I have not spent many, much time around donkeys. I've seen those Hollywood productions, though, uh, enough to be informed and know that an animal that has never had a rider on it has to be broken, right? I mean, this animal's never been sat upon. And I know from Hollywood that before it's broken, the rider is going to be licking the dust a little bit, you know, getting bucked off, picking themselves uh, up out of the dirt. That animal is going to boot them before it submits to them. But this is no ordinary rider, is it? I love this. This is Jesus. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one to whom all material and spiritual things submit at his word. In the gospel accounts, Jesus demonstrates his, his power over everything, like everything. The wind and the waves, you know, physical, material things, water to wine, 
created material substance out of nothing, bread and fishes. He multiple times demonstrated his power over the fish of the sea, sickness, disease, raised the dead without a, without a, you know, hardly a word he would set free those who were possessed by demonic spirits. So I just think, you know, a, a donkey, an unbroken, unbridled donkey, yeah, it's going to submit to the one who created him. The one who created the animal kingdom. And I love this. Jesus just says, uh, you tell the master, or tell the, the owner of that animal, the master needs it and nothing else need be said. Wow, just, this is, as Jesus is coming into the city, we're getting the sense he is in complete control over what is going on. And as they begin to crest the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem and the temple coming into view, uh, the magnitude of that which was unfolding began to come into the realization of the disciples and all of the awaiting worshipers there in Jerusalem. Jews had been waiting for a thousand years since the time of David for this. It's hard to imagine, you know. We lose context on these things, lose sight of these things. Don't brush it off. You know, we tend to get impatient, brush, brush off hope and expectation. We don't get things in the time frame we desire. They had waited a thousand years for this. Parents had taught their children, one day, the Messiah is coming and he'll be our king. Maybe it'll happen in your generation. Grandparents had taught their grandchildren. They had said, I was young and and now I'm old and I've been waiting in anticipation all my life for the appearing of the king. I think for 2,000 years, Jews hoped to get back to Jerusalem, you know, and said, you know, maybe next year in Jerusalem. And now after 2,000 years, they have it. For 2,000 years, the church is long for the return of the king. God's timing is not always our timing, but we don't give up hope. We live in patient expectation, stewarding that which is left to our care while the master is away. One day he's coming to claim his vineyard. What had they been waiting for? They'd been waiting for a king like David. They'd been waiting for one who had a heart after God to lead them towards God. They'd been waiting for him to bring peace and prosperity. David had stretched the kingdom to its limits. He was a man of wisdom and worship, and he was a giant slayer who could connect with common people. He was a man who understood what it was like to, to suffer and, and to rub shoulders with the common man. He was the ideal king. That's what they were waiting for. I mean, it starts to help us get a picture of what was unfolding during this triumphal entry Jesus was rumored to be the king, and then he comes like this, and as they began to see it, and the dots began to connect, and they began to say, our, our patient waiting has been fulfilled, they began to shout and sing. I love this. See, this is what redeemed people of God do. Those who put their hope in the Lord, they shout and sing, don't they? It's unique to the body of Christ. Look at this, verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Man, this is just like... 
it becomes not only is the donkey unbridled, the disciples are unbridled. Those who are following Jesus are unbridled in their enthusiasm and in in their praise. It's like they began to like rip branches off of trees and start waving them and singing their hosannas and laying down their cloaks on the animal and on, on the road. I think they were singing Psalm 118. Maybe today you could go home and read that. They cried out, Hosanna, which isn't like, hey, great to see you. Hosanna means save us. Save us. Save us now. Get us out of this mess, Jesus. Get on with it, Jesus. Bring the kingdom. It's it's a plea. It's not praise. It's a prayer from the hearts of the people just coming out. We're desperate for you to save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The last time they had broken off branches and welcomed a leader into the city of Jerusalem and spread them on the road was a hundred years beforehand when Simon Maccabeus and his son Judas Maccabeus had set them free from the Greeks. The last time they had taken their cloaks off and laid them on the ground was for a crazy man riding a horse into the city of Jerusalem by the name of Jehu, who drove fiercely into the city, became king. No doubt these pictures are in their mind. They know these things. They're connecting them and and they're saying, at last, we're free. You know, it's like, I don't know, all this Jewish nationalism, just like a cork <laughs> bursting out of a bottle. And for centuries, it was pressure, 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 and now it's bubbling over. And the Pharisees were watching these things, and Luke tells us they didn't like it. They actually tried to stop it. Luke doesn't tell us the reason. He says they just, they tried to stop it. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I love this verse. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great scripture verse right there? It's like, hey, the one who created the material universe knows the truth. The stones would cry out. And it's amazing, in the midst of it all, the disciples, the Pharisees, Everyone missed one thing, that donkey. They missed the donkey. They missed the revelation and the picture of what the donkey was all about, that he was coming to make peace, not to be a a conquering warrior. You know, Revelation chapter 19 tells us that Jesus will come on a horse. He will come. He'll crush evil and he'll bring a righteous rule on on earth that will not just be spiritual in its nature, but on that day, he was not coming to do that. You know, I've ridden a donkey. When we were in Petra, my feet were pretty much brushing the ground on that animal, okay? I'm like, really? This is, this is it? I, I paid 20 bucks for this? <laughs> they missed the donkey, okay? This was not much of an animal. No king rides a donkey dragging his feet into the city. This was not a military victory. A donkey is an animal of peace and a horse is an animal of war. And they missed it. And, and I want you to catch this. The most amazing thing happened. Here's, here's one of these spots again where these just divisions in your Bible are terrible. They shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be there. 
You look at it, you'll, you'll see verse 41, it, there's a, a subtitle in your Bible that says, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. There's no division there, you guys. What's he writing? What's he doing? Did he get off the donkey? Did Luke told you, tell you that he got off the donkey? Look at, they missed this. They were looking at him, they were praising, they were worshiping, they were crying Hosanna, they were waving their palm branches and laying down their cloaks and Jesus was riding that animal and he burst into tears. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. The term in the original language is the strongest possible term that can be used. It means sobbing your heart out. Can you imagine, have you, have you sobbed your heart out before? Like where you're heaving and there's snot and, and you're like, someone get me a Kleenex and there's tears. This is Jesus. Jesus was sobbing his heart out and thousands were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's amazing. It's like, at his birth, the angels declared glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Peace to men with whom his favor rests. But this crowd is singing, peace, let there be peace in heaven, which I think is a good, you know, that's a good foreshadow of the cross right there. But it's, they're echoing back the very cry of the angels from the birth of Jesus. And you would think that Jesus would be thrilled. High-fiving people, yeah. <laughs> But he wept. He wept. And I go, well, what kind of tears were those? You know, you've maybe had those tears in your life, like happy tears, where you maybe at the birth of a child or happy tears at, at a wedding. Uh, maybe they thought he was weeping those kind of tears, you know? Look at Jesus. He's just overcome with emotion. This is just all so exciting as he comes to take his kingdom. And, and what they weren't seeing, what they weren't recognizing, was what they thought was a day of triumph. They didn't know was actually the day when all their troubles were about to begin. The reason? They didn't understand what makes for peace, you know. When you talk about peace and a human being having peace, they didn't, they didn't understand what makes for peace. You know what peace is about? What's peace? Comfort? Health? Enough money in the bank, a nice home? Ha having family all around? Security in our old age? The right political leader? Or party? These are the things that we think make for peace. And it's amazing that the crowd always will turn on those who won't give them the peace that they want. And Jesus saw that this would happen. He'd come to make peace. Look at 42. I'll back up. I'll read verse 41 as well. And when he drew near, saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side 
and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus was weeping as he rode that donkey because they did not understand this was the beginning of trouble because they didn't understand what peace was truly about. Of course, 40 years later, Roman general Titus would lead a siege against the city of Jerusalem for, for three years and he would overthrow it in 70 AD. And it's, it's actually fascinating that Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another. Do you know what Titus did? Uh, when, when You've probably heard this before, but when his soldiers finally broke through and the Roman soldiers got in, into the city of Jerusalem, somebody randomly threw a torch and it went into the temple. And it wasn't against his orders, but the temple caught on fire and burnt. And the inside of the temple had gold everywhere. And so the gold melted and it went down between every crack and crevice of rock that you can imagine. And so Titus had to recover the gold. So what he did was this. He got his soldiers to accumulate as much stuff that they could burn as possible. And he went to all the cisterns of water that were on the Temple Mount, and he lit massive fires over them. And the Temple Mount and the Temple were all built out of limestone. Heat, water, bad thing. He literally exploded the Temple Mount, you guys, to collect all of the gold that came off the Temple Mount, fulfilling the words of Jesus. Not one stone will be left upon another. See, these folks on the day that Jesus rode into the city, they didn't realize that Jesus came to save them, not from Rome, but listen, important, from themselves. To save them from themselves. He rode over the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, through that eastern gate. And rather than making a right-hand turn and going to, actually, can we go back to that picture of the temple? I forgot to mention this. Rather than making a right-hand turn and turning towards the Antonio Fortress, which is this building right here, the Romans had built it to control their occupation of Jerusalem and oversee everything that was happening in the temple grounds because it was always a volatile situation. And rather than going through that eastern gate and hanging a right and making his way to Pontius Pilate and overthrowing Roman rule in the city, Jesus made a left and he went into this area, which is called the Court of the Gentiles. The Court of the Gentiles was the place where anyone could go to pray. Anyone. You didn't have to be a, a Jewish person. You didn't, it didn't matter whether you were male or female. It didn't matter whether you were upper class or lower class or a, a, a priest or a sheep herder or whatever it was. Anyone could go there to pray. And Jesus went in there as Passover season. And what did he discover? You know what he discovered. You've been kicking around the church for a long time. Money changers. No room to pray. People selling animals and, you know, at exorbitant rates. And an area of worship and a place of prayer being turned into a marketplace. And it's there that Jesus got a whip and used force, not in the Antonio Fortress, overthrowing Roman rulers. He got a whip and he used force against those 
who would stop the worship and the, the place of prayer from happening. Jesus came not to deal with other people, not to deal with people that cause you and I troubles and problems. He came to deal with you. He came to deal with the issue of worship. And the Lord always wants to do this. He always wants to deal, church, with his people first. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is so significant. All four gospels tell us this account. And Jesus was stating this, you don't need to be saved from outside forces. You don't need to be saved from everyone else. What you need is to be saved from yourself. There's something that is in every one of us that says, you know, don't deal with me, deal with them. They're the problem. They're the problem. And Jesus wants to come and make our lives a house of, a house of prayer. Not, not free from trouble, but free from the power and presence of sin. What Jesus wants for you is, a, what he has for you is a cross, not a cushion. No one was singing Hosanna when the whip came out. You know, last night, uh, we're home doing our thing and going through my regular routines. And uh, Eli calls and he's like, hey, uh, I've just been on the phone with the police. Somebody was in my car. And we're like, what? Yeah, he's like, I, th I think it happened at home. So we're like, what? So Lisa goes out the door, and then we see like some guy going down the street, and we can see she saw that in his backpack he had what was in Eli's car. So I'm like, what? I'm like scrambling, trying to find my shoes. <laughs> so we, we get in the car, and 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 Lisa yelled at him, so he ran away. So I'm like, why did you do that? You know, I'm getting mad at my wife, and she let me get that guy. And uh, so we drive around the neighborhood. We're looking for him. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm boiling over. And so then we, no luck, I pull back in the driveway, and I see he's gone through every other vehicle in the driveway too. It wasn't just, you know, I came out the door in a hurry and didn't recognize. And I'll tell you, man, sometimes your life becomes a living sermon when you're like, I'm like, all night I'm, I got dreams and thoughts of murder, <laughs> anger. You know, I thought, I'm gonna, if I get my hands on that person, I went looking for him. I'm going to just, I, I, I like to be honest with you guys. I got my headlamp. I got my bat. I went for a walk around my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, he wasn't going to be singing Hosanna if I found him. And I, I, I realized, you know, like I couldn't sleep all night. You know, it's mad. Whoa, get that guy. And I thought, man. What robs me of my peace? He messed with my stuff. You touch my stuff. And church, the point is this. Your peace, your peace does not come from your stuff. Your peace does not come from your comfort, uh, from your security, from your fat bank account, from your house, from having your family around, from, from this or that. Peace comes from Jesus. And it's in spite of all of those things. Look at verse 47. It says this. 
And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. I like this. It's like Jesus needed to spend time teaching these crowds to save them from themselves. And day after day, he was teaching them. You know, after missing the whole point of the triumphal entry, he didn't go into the temple and talk about Rome. He didn't make the subject of his speaking on this Passion Week uh, Herod or Pontius Pilate. He was talking about good news. And this morning, what I want to just encourage you to do is remind you again where peace comes from and what true peace is. And to invite Christ to come and cleanse the temple. Because his word tells us we're all a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and the temple has to be put right so that it can be a center of peace. That Jesus would reign on the throne of your heart and, and peace would be present no matter what occupation there is, no matter what's going on with your stuff, no matter who's interfering. Have peace in your heart. Look, I want to just ask you this morning, what's troubling you? What's troubling you? Whatever is wrong, whatever is wrong, Jesus wants you to have his peace. 